Hello and welcome to the River's Edge Church Podcast. Today, Pastor Dave Johnson will bring a message from our series on the book of Revelation. We're excited to share another episode with you today. And now, here's Pastor Dave. All right, good morning. All right. Well, actually, before we get to the message today, um, we have an update for our Multiply 2025 campaign and we filmed the video so that that way this update can kind of live on the internet as well. And those who aren't here can see it. And so we're going to put this on the internet right after today. But we want you to turn your attention to the video for a minute. Hello, River's Edge. It's Pastor Dave here. And I wanted to come to you and give you an update on our Multiply 2025 campaign. First and foremost, I want to give you a little bit of history. Maybe you weren't here when we started this campaign. In February of 2022, we unveiled our new vision called Multiply 2025. Now, here's the reasoning behind this, and here's where we were. You know, I came to this church in August of 2021, and I had been praying, Lord, what do you want for REC? I felt the Lord prompting me and leading me to say, I want this church to be about the Great Commission. I think God wants every church to be about that, but He specifically wants this church to be about planting churches, about growing the kingdom, multiplying the blessing that God has given us into the kingdom. And so I was thinking about that and excited about that as I came up. And then we were hit with a little bit of a different reality. There was this consultant's report. Now the church board had very wisely hired a consultant to come in and say, give us an honest picture of what REC looks like. And they said, that's what REC is right now. As leveled off, there's some vision drift, there's some mission drift. And ultimately you need to get back to God honoring worship and the Great Commission. And so as we began talking about that and dreaming about where we might put money and what we might do next, there was a stark reality that hit us and that our facilities were beginning to be a problem financially. And the reality is, is if you've ever been part of a church before, sometimes the building can become the mission. And we never want that to happen. Because the building is important, it facilitates the worship of God's people, but it's not our mission. It's not why we exist. We want to be the kind of church that's about people, not buildings. So let's raise the money and fix everything. That's part of what Multiply 2025 does. The other thing that it does is it says, we need to be the kind of church that is about God honoring worship. So we'll talk about that in a minute, but we raise money for a worship leader. And lastly, we need to be about planting churches. So the first area in Multiply that we really believe we need to go after first is the area of God honoring worship. And so as we begin to think and process how this might work out, we simply knew the reality. We did not have the money in our general budget in order to hire a worship leader. So we put it in the Multiply budget and we said, we've got to do this first. And we began praying about it and we began raising this money and we hired a worship leader. And here's amazing praise that has happened in this area. Now, we had budgeted in our multiply budget to have the worship leader in there for three years. But in reality, what actually happened is that our church started to grow and giving started to grow with it. And so our budget for multiply, the worship leader was only in there for 11 months. Not even a full year of salary was taken out of Multiply, only 11 months. And the rest of his salary now gets paid out of our general budget. This frees up money elsewhere to do all these other projects that we want to do. The next area in Multiply 2025 is actually our largest area. And that is the area of our facilities. 
Why is this so large? Well, there's really two words that help explain this, and that is deferred maintenance. Now, deferred maintenance is simply maintenance that you put off. And at REC, we unfortunately had some deferred maintenance. So such was the case in our children's building. We had leaky roofs on and off again for years. And just this year, because of Multiply 2025, we've been able to put a brand new roof on that building, and it's remained leak-free in all the storms that we've had. Let me give you a list of all the other things that we've done here at REC, just in facilities so far. We have given a fresh look to our foyer. To our nursery, to our family quiet room, and even into our sanctuary. We've been able to paint the entire building. Uh, we did a new logo and a new sign. Another thing that we've done is our parking lot resurfacing. That's an area that will continually be an issue of maintenance that will always need to happen. Now what we have left to do are all really big projects. So we've got five roofs on this building and we need to imminently redo three of them. Down the road, we'll need to redo more, but three of them badly need to be redone here. We have to paint the entire rest of the exterior of the church. And that's not just to paint it for a new look, but that is actually to help protect the stucco and the sides of the buildings. Our bathrooms desperately need to be remodeled. And so those are on the list as well. Our children's center needs a remodel. We actually, because we're growing in that area so much, we need to take a couple of walls down, replace some carpeting. There's a number of things in that area that we need to do. And then lastly, there's something that uh, probably most people come to church and don't even think of that needs to be redone. And that's a significant cost. And that is our stage lighting. Our stage lighting is really old and there will come a time where it'll just go out on us. There won't be any warning. It's just going to go out. And we need to replace that with newer technology so that that doesn't happen so that it's not going to be a big ticket item down the road. Now, the third and last area of Multiply 2025 is the area of church planting. Now, we still believe and know that God is calling us to this area, but it's a little bit yet to be realized at the moment. And we're still praying about what God is leading us to do in this area. But we do know this one thing, that your budget actually equals your vision. And this is true in your family too. If you have a vision that God is calling you to do, if you don't budget for it, it's not going to happen. And so we know that God is leading us in this area. And one of the great things about taking care of our facilities now and all these big ticket items that we've been doing now is that it's going to free up money in our budget later for mission rather than buildings, for doing these incredible things like planting churches and multiplying disciples, leaders in churches. Now I want to share with you a little bit about the reality, the numbers. Now God has done an incredible work in this. In the last two years, we've raised $190,000 of the $300,000 that we've been trying to reach. That is incredible. This is simply additional money that we're using to take care of all these deferred maintenance things. Now we've got about one year left in the Multiply campaign. That's give or take. Some people started later, some people started earlier on their three-year commitment, their three-year pledge. But there's some other numbers that I think are very interesting in this. God has been really just favoring REC and just doing some an amazing thing here. We've seen people, we've seen this church grow from our average attendance when we started this campaign was 122 adults on a Sunday. 
And now our average attendance is 170 adults on a Sunday. That's a growth of over 50 people on average um, between when we started and between right now. So there's more of us that could help with this campaign. But every project we've done is more expensive than we budgeted because of inflation. Many of you have felt the pinch of inflation at home and we understand we feel it here as well. You know, we budgeted for one thing and then as uh, inflation goes up, the costs just keep going and going and going. So one of the great things is that we only need to raise $110,000 in about a year. I think that God is faithful and that this is gonna happen and we're gonna be able to do this because of your generosity and the faithfulness of God. Now, I know we focus on buildings a lot in this campaign, but I want to tell you something. Jesus never stood up before his disciples and said, go into all the world and construct a great children's center. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, teaching them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, baptizing them in God's name. Go do that. Now, buildings are an important part of that but they're not the mission. And we wanna be about God's mission. So it's our hope, it's our desire, it's our prayer that once we wrap this campaign up and we've figured out all these deferred maintenance issues, we could take the money we were spending on facilities and put that into mission, put that into church planting, put that into reaching the world for Jesus. So here's how you could help us in realizing this vision. There's three areas. One, we wanna invite you to pray. We believe that God moves mountains during prayer, that God does incredible things for his church. And we believe on him in faith that he is gonna take care of his church and meet all of our needs. So would you begin praying for REC and praying for this vision if you have not already? Maybe you need to renew this sense of prayer, praying that God would make us into a multiplying church. Another thing that you could do is to participate. Now, many of our Facilities projects are done by the people in this church. It helps us to save money. Maybe you could help in that way. You could participate in that way. Maybe you could participate in making disciples, in leading small groups. There's a number of ways you could participate in the spiritual life of REC. And the last way is to pledge. Maybe you're here and you've already given to this Multiply project. Your commitment's over, your commitment's up. You've done it. Thank you. We want to encourage those of you who maybe you weren't here when we started this to begin thinking about how you can pledge and give towards Multiply and really help us meet this goal of raising $110,000 in the next year. I want to encourage you to begin praying about what you might pledge, what you might give. And you could do that all through our website, recsac.org, and then you click on giving and there's a way to do it there. So we want to encourage you to pray about this because we really believe that God is doing something new here at REC and we want you to be a part of it. Thanks for watching as we talk about Multiply 2025. Whoops, that's the update on Multiply 2025. Uh, It's always awkward watching yourself on video. When I was uh, screening that video, Sal Agrasani made it for us. I said, it's just so frustrating how crooked my nose is. I, when I was in college, I had a snowboarding accident on opening day and it was just ice and I fell and hit my face in the snow and broke my nose. Didn't even know it was broken until years later, I go to the doctor and he says, 
you know you have a broken nose, right? And I was like, oh, that kind of makes sense now. Yeah. Anyhow, uh, that was the most frustrating part about watching that video for me. Let's get into it. We got a lot to cover today, and I already uh, ate into time by 10 minutes with that video, so I'm going to jump right in today. We're in Revelation chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles. In, 19, in the 1930s, Adolf Hitler was beginning his ramp-up of power in Germany. And his what would become essentially World War II he was beginning to exert his dominance of control in all of German life, and this included the German church, because in Germany, the church is the Lutheran church, and it would begin to, he would begin to dominate this. Now, every dictator says, oh, we're never going to touch religion, we're never going to touch the church, and in almost, I think, probably 100% of the cases, that's just never been the case. So he sends his new church leader, Reinhold Krauss who was a man put in charge of the German church, to give a rousing speech to over 20,000 German Christians. And the compromise would begin. He would say this. He gave this speech to over 20,000 German Christians, and he said, once and for all, the church must divest itself from any hint of Jewishness. The Old Testament would be first. That's got to go. It's too Jewish. The New Testament must also be revised and present Jesus's, uh, Jesus corresponding with the demands of national socialism. Krauss also mocked the theology of Paul, the apostle, with his scapegoats and inferiority complex, and then he mocked the symbol of the cross as a ridiculous, debilitating remnant of Judaism, unacceptable to national socialism. Furthermore, he demanded that every German pastor must make an oath of personal allegiance to Hitler. Did you know that happened? Now, there was an immediate backlash against the speech, and many German Christians left to go, and many German theologians, Dietrich Bonhoeffer being among the most prominent, left to go form something called the Confessing Church. And they said, no, orthodoxy is too important to us. This is not Lutherism. This is not Christianity. We need to go form the confessing church. There was an immediate backlash against this speech, but many Christians in Germany at the time were a little scared and didn't know what to do and said, well, God says honor the state. And so they honored the state and they watched in horror as on their altars the crosses were replaced with swastikas and the Bibles replaced with Mein Kampf. This actually happened. Now, there was a great backlash against this. And after World War II, of course, that was all torn down and stuff like that. But the point is, what does the church do in the face of such cultural pressure? What do you do? This was massive cultural pressure put on all the Christians in Germany at the time. And they had a choice. We either capitulate or we go and rebel, and then we're rebels against the state. What do we do? And this is kind of the pressure that we're going to look at when we look at the church of Pergamum as we look to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. It was a church under tremendous pressure for the mind. See, what Hitler wanted was the minds of all the people. 
He wanted their brains because he knew that if he could mold their thinking and get them to think like his way, his national socialism, all that, then he could have full and total control of whatever he wanted to do. And that's what Hitler was going for. And that's why Hitler went after the church. So as we look at this place in Pergamum, Pergamum um, comes from the word, uh, the Greek word parchment at the time. It was a place with a massive library. It was a place of ideas. It was a place where there was lots of ideas. And it was a place that there was a battle for the mind. So Revelation 2.12, we're going to actually go through this um, a little bit slower instead of reading the entire passage. So Revelation 2.12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Let's pause right there. Why does Jesus use this type of language? He's got the two sharp two-edged sword. Now, if you look back at Revelation 1.16, you'll see in his right hand, he had seven stars, from, and from the mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And remember, it was all symbology, and his face was like the sun shining in strength. Jesus is pictured right up front with when he opened his mouth, this sharp two-edged sword came out. Now, again, we're reading apocalyptic literature. Does, when Jesus talks, does the sword actually fall out of his mouth? No. But there's a bigger and deeper symbolic point to this. And the idea is that when Jesus speaks, truth happens. Whatever, whatever Jesus is speaking is the truth because Jesus is the truth. And all the falsehood that's alive within us, all the darkness that's alive within us, everything gets measured against those, the words of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. Now, later in the book of Revelation, you're going to see this, and I'm going to spoil the end for you, but you probably already know Jesus wins, okay? Sorry if you didn't know that. If you didn't know that, you're like, oh, I really wanted to know. I really wanted to be surprised. Jesus wins. Revelation 19 says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury and wrath of the God Almighty. And then 1921, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The entire picture of the book of Revelation is the God who battles with the sword that comes from his mouth. So what does this mean, right? I love what's happening in John chapter 6. If you've ever read John chapter 6, and keep in mind, same author as the book of Revelation. Jesus is talking with his disciples, and he's giving them communion. And he's talking to them about, you know, eating his body and drinking his blood. And a lot of people desert him. And they're like, this is weird. Okay? And then John 6, 66, verses 68 say this. After many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Your words cut deep. Those were Jesus's words. Jesus's words cut deep into our life. I, I was listening to a testimony of somebody in our church uh, this last week, and, and uh, she came to Christ to read in the Bible. Why? The words of God cut deep. I came to Christ as a 14-year-old kid exploring the Bible because I wanted to know if this, there was any truth in this. I'm reading the words of Jesus, and they cut deep. The truth of Jesus cuts deep in our lives. 
And God wants to do incredible things through in your life through his truth. He wants to give you his truth. But when you're full of, uh, of deceit and full of darkness, sometimes those words of Jesus feel like they cut really deep, don't they? They feel like this double-edged sword. So the point in Revelation, especially in chapter 19, Jesus shows up and speaks and he wins because he is the source of all truth. Peter, seeing everybody flee Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, don't you want to go too? And Peter's like, dude, where do we go? You have these words of eternal life. You have the words of truth. And we need to give ourselves over to that. That's what Jesus says in response to Peter. I'm sorry, that's what Peter says in response to Jesus. So the first feeling I have for you today is this. The truth of Jesus effortlessly cuts through our own deceit. It does. And it's, it, it's, it's both beautiful and terrible at the same time, isn't it? As you read the words of Jesus and you're like, oh, man, I haven't lived up to that. But then it's always like, oh, this is what truth looks like in my life now. This is what, this is, uh, like, I am no longer the standard bearer of truth. Jesus is. And part of the problem is that we uh, start to say, well, I know truth. I decide what's true in my own eyes. And that becomes a huge problem. But the sword also has this other interesting double meaning to it. Now, in Pergamum, it was one of the only cities of the ancient world. There was a few cities, but it was one of the only cities in the ancient world given the right of the sword. It was one of the few cities of the Roman Empire that had been given the right so they could carry out the death penalty. So why does the Prince of Peace use such language? Because the church in Pergamum was locked in a fierce battle. It's the, idea, the, the battle of the mind, like we talked about today. This is essentially the drama that we're locked into when we look at presidential elections. It's the battle over ideas, right? And the one who convinces most people gets their ideas get power. Ideas matter because power follows. Do you get that? Ideas matter because power follows. This war that the church was engaged in was not a battle with people and weapons. It was a battle over truth. And the church was really interested, and the church was very interested in a very different kind of power than the world. We're interested in spiritual power, the power of Jesus to transform. Jesus was serious that the church ought to fight this battle faithfully. That the church needs to be the standard bearers of his truth and his word. Because at the end of this letter, he says, if you're not, I will come at you with the sword of my mouth. He directs that to us, the church. So we better know this, right? And we better, we better faithfully go after the truth of Jesus. Because he says, I'll soon come after you and fight you with the sword of my mouth. That's promising, right? So this battle has two fronts, the battle for truth. One, the outside world, right? The outside world. And, and that's the ide ideas that conflict with God's revelation in Jesus were bombarding the church Everything from the way they did business to persecution, to what came in the church, the religious world, everything was against the church, you know, and, and that's true of, of this first century church. But the second most dangerous threat where this battle for truth played out is the internal battle, the inside threat. 
The same thoughts that conflict with God's revelation of Jesus made it into the church and were pressuring others from the inside. And that's what was happening in the church of Pergamum. There was this great pressure to capitulate to outside culture inside of the church. And by the way, I think Hitler knew what he was doing when he had Reinhold Krauss give that speech. He was trying to put pressure internally on the churches to get them to fight about what they were going to do and then to begin to follow him. I think that's probably what he was trying to do. Revelation 2, 13 through 14 says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you do not deny my faith. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. We'll get to what that, all that means in a second. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So let's pause there. Jesus says, first, I know where you dwell. I know where your house is. Uh, and, and remember, in the very beginning of Revelation, Jesus is pictured standing in the middle of his church. And so he's like, listen, I'm with you. I know where you're at. He knows that the church is, some of it is standing on firm and some of it is having this difficulty. Because in here we have like the only name of an early martyr of any of these seven churches in Antipas, this guy who died because of his faith. But he knows that internally this church has begun to compromise. It's got problems. They were starting to follow their culture. They were starting to say things like, well, you can worship Jesus and still work and do this emperor stuff, and, and you could just pretend to do all that stuff. It's, it's hocus pocus. You could just do all that stuff, the, the emperor worship stuff, and it's fine. You could do both, you know? We could still exist as a church like that. They were beginning to compromise their faith. Now, I want to talk for a second because I think this is unfortunately a great example. And that's in a broader sense, not just here, not here at REC at all necessarily, but the Church of America beginning to compromise. Where at one point, because of the innovations of the American church, it was, became the most prominent and influential church around the world. Now, because of a compromised theology, the rest of the church around the world has said, we cannot tolerate the theology of the American church. A lot of people don't know that because we're inwardly focused a lot of times. But there's many churches around the world, some of them have broken communion with the American church. Now, I want to stand up, I never want to stand up here and talk poorly about other churches. So I'm going to talk about statistics. And here's the statistics I want to give you. The church in America is on the decline. If you look at the statistics, you'll see that the church in America is shrinking. That is um, a false picture, though, because what's really happened is that mainline churches, your, um, I guess I won't define those in front of you, but I could, mainline churches have declined anywhere from 20 to 60% in the last 20 years. And churches, there's other churches that have continued to grow over the last 20 years. And all in all, if you put all those numbers together, it still shows a decline. But there's some churches that are growing rapidly and some churches that are declining rapidly. It makes sense to say, what's the difference between the two? Well, almost universally, 
the churches that have declined between 20 to 60% in the last 20 years have all compromised on the area of what a biblical marriage is. They all have, every single one of them. And 20 to 60% has lost attendance and have gone downhill and have closed thousands and thousands of churches. But churches that have stayed true to the biblical sexual ethic have actually grown in that time. It's simply an example of what is actually happening in the church in America. Compromise has begun this great decline. And this is what's happening in Pergamon. Now, by the way, compromise is not all bad. If you're having a fight with your spouse, it's okay, compromise, right? If you're locked in a battle at work, it's a good thing, compromise. But when it comes to the truth and what, what the Bible is, it's either this is God's standard for truth or I'm God's standard for truth. I will always go for this. You should always go for the scripture. That's why scripture is our number one core value here. Because we always, even if it's offensive, we have to go with what God's standard of truth is, not what man's standard of truth is. So truth is unchanging. We cannot make the Bible mold to what we want to say. But see, just like the other churches all around Pergamon, they're discovering that the city of Pergamon was in this highly influential area that was causing them to compromise. So here's what Jesus, I want to explain a few other things and show you the root of this compromise that Pergamon was making. First, he says, I know where you're at. You're, you're where the throne of Satan is. Now, keep in mind, there wasn't like a, a throne with like Lucifer sitting on it, right? This is coded language that, that Jesus is giving to the church. So here's what he's saying. So there was this, in Pergamon, if you were to go there today, there's this little hill, and then behind it was a much larger hill. And all the high places, that's where you put your temples to the gods. And it was a, there was a road going up, and there was all these temples to all these different gods. One of the gods was the god Escipolos. Escipolos is the god of healing, the symbol of snakes. Now, by the way, in order to be healed in this temple, you had to lay down and let snakes crawl over you. Yeah. No, I'd rather be hurt. <laughs> I'd rather be sick, right? That does not sound good to me. But if I've got a picture of an ambulance, by the way. Um, I'm not sure if I... Yeah, there it is. See that little symbol on the back? You see this in every ambulance that drives by. There's a snake with a staff on it. That was the sign of Escipulos during the ancient world. That, that is a thousands of year old symbol, and it's the symbol of healing, and it's on every doctor's place and ambulance and stuff like that. Some of you have probably gone to the doctor a trillion times, and you have no idea where that came from. It, this comes from the worship of Escipulos. Not to say that, like, if you're having a heart attack, you're like, don't put me in that devil wagon. You know, like, no, go with them to the hospital, okay? It's become the symbol of the medical community. It's fine. Obviously, you know, you're not worshiping that. But this Escipolos had this very prominent temple up there in Pergamum. And so when Jesus says, I know where you're at, the place where Satan has his throne— well, what was in the garden? What did Jesus call Satan in the garden? The serpent, right? And, and all of a sudden, there's this place where the serpent, um, the serpent God now has this prominent place, this prominent place. So anyways, that's probably what they were talking about. And then he says this, but I have a few things against you. And this is Revelation uh, 2, 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. You have put 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. By the way, chapter uh, the church in Ephesus hated the Nicolaitans, and I told you, I'll tell you about that later. I'm going to tell you about it now. Okay. Because he loves truth, because Jesus is truth, he only speaks truth to the church, and his mouth, his words to the church is supposed to pierce them. That's the idea here. And he says, you hold to the, the, the teachings of Balaam. And some of you are like, what is that, right? The early church would have absolutely known what this is. And, and by the way, just in case some, of, some people read the Old Testament and think this is all made up, like this is all just like a made-up story. Um, maybe it is just to kind of like help people understand, like, uh, I don't know, help people understand like uh, uh, some moral lesson, like Aesop's fables. Well, Balaam was a real guy. He was a sorcerer from modern-day Jordan. And archaeologists have dug up, in 1967, they dug up something called the Deir Allah inscription. And in that inscription is a bunch of writings about this guy, Balaam the sorcerer. So this is not something that the Bible just invents. Like they found external proof that this guy lived, okay? So Balaam is this magician or sorcerer in the ancient world. And the king of Moab calls on Balaam to come to him because he sees in the distance these two million Jewish people who had left Egypt and who are on their way to the promised land. This is what happens in the book of Numbers. And so it, it, they see, you know, the exodus happens and they're leaving and all this stuff. And, he, and, and whenever you have that amount of people coming towards your border, you go, well, this is a ma major threat. Like, we're going to go to war with these people. They're going to want all of our food. They're going to want all of our resources. So, so he calls um, Balaam, the king, uh, Balak is the king, and he calls Balaam and he says, I want you to put a curse on these people. And no matter how hard Balaam tries, he cannot curse them. You know, Balaam's the guy who had the talking donkey. If, you, if like, you're looking for a reference for this story, just remember back to Sunday school as a kid. He's walking, he's going with his donkey, and his donkey opposes him and says, the path you're on is reckless. Stop going this direction. But he keeps going. So the king of Moab is like, call down curses on him. Use your magic. Get rid of these people. And he's like, I can't do it. And he ends up blessing them. But then he, but you know, Balaam's not a good Jewish person. So he's like, you know, king, if you really want to cause them to get out of here, they follow the God Yahweh. And Yahweh has some pretty strict uh, ways of living for his people. So here's what I want you to do. Yahweh wants to be the only God. So why don't you send your women out to sleep with them? And have them eat food, sacrifice to idols. Why don't you do that? Just send your women out. And, and as they, they meet the women, then their hearts will be turned to, and they'll be for you. And essentially, that's what Balaam teaches them to do. And of course, that's exactly what happens. And so what is happening in this church in Pergamum, when Jesus says, you hold to the teachings of Balaam, or you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which, by the way, in Hebrew and in Greek, they just mean, they kind of mean the exact same thing, the Nicolaitans and Balaam. So it's, it's the, tra the words are translated to exactly the same. So it's essentially somebody who's compromising. You could do both. 
You could honor God uh, in, you know, on Sundays, but then the rest of the week you could just kind of live however you want. Like, that's sort of the idea here. It's like, yes, we're going to honor God this way. We're not going to hold to this being the truth all the time. Yeah, this is the truth on Sundays, but then the truth of my life is that I could do this and this and this, or my truth is I could do this and this and this. No. Truth is truth is truth. Truth is the scriptures. Truth is everything that comes out of God's mouth. So essentially, they were, this church in Pergamum was, was having this interesting battle on the inside. They had people who were absolutely faithful to Jesus, faithful unto death. And then they had people who were compromising. So unlike the church in Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, if you remember back, Jesus said, hey, you've forgotten your first love. And essentially what they were doing is they held, held so closely to doctrine and they were so worried about their doctrine being corrupted that they forgot to love the outside world and invite them to know Jesus. This church has gone the opposite direction and is held loosely to doctrine and been corrupted by the practices of the outside world. And some of this was um, and when I say corrupted in sexual immorality, I mean walking up to those temples and having sex with the temple prostitutes in order to have good fertility or something like that. Like this was a very common practice in the ancient world. So you have this church that's just locked in this interior battle of compromise. They don't know what the truth is. Half of them don't, half of them do. And Jesus is essentially saying, come back to me. Come back to my truth. So when I said the, the, the words mean the same thing, by the way, the, um, between Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans, the Greek root of Nikon means Lord, and Laos means people. In Hebrew, Bel means Lord, and Am means people. So it means the exact same thing. So we're talking to Hebrews and Greeks, saying, listen, don't fall into this compromise trap. Don't fall into it. It's Jesus' way of talking to both. And I think the best way to not fall into it is Romans 12 too, what Paul says. And I put that actually just straight up as a fill-in in your notes today. It says this, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conformity to the patterns of our world is death. That's what Paul says. That's what Jesus says. That's what the scriptures say, that, that this is a whole new world in following Jesus, that he is our new reality, he is our new truth, and that we follow him. And it's not that it means that we're against the outside world. It doesn't mean we hate the outside world. It doesn't mean any of that. We could still love them, but not be conformed to them. Absolutely. I try and raise my kids, and I, I hope I'm doing an okay job here, to be leaders, my wife and I, we want them to be leaders and not to be influenced. We want them to be the influencers because the stresses that, like I said last week, that kids are under at school and just in our world, they're so powerful that we want to raise them to be leaders so that they lead a different direction. See, the argument of the town of Pergamum at this time, and, and it's not really going to sound foreign to the argument now is that the body is essentially a collection of human biological material. What you do with your body doesn't really matter. 
Ultimately, you'll be liberated from your body. So what you do with your body doesn't matter. The soul will leave, and that's all that matters, and is that your soul is safe. That was the argument in the ancient world. See, at the same time, this idea has crept into the minds of the people who were fighting against Balaam. It was a lie that said you could go to the temple prostitute and involve your body, but leave your soul outside. It's a lie that says you can engage in a feast to another God, but it doesn't really matter if you just leave your soul out of it. You still worship Yahweh. It's a lie that says whatever is most important is what I want to do. It's a lie that says embrace yourself, don't deny yourself. So when confronted with this, and we are all the time, I love what the prolific author Dallas Willard says. He says this, and this is a fill-in, the mind sets the stage for the will to choose. The mind sets the stage for the will to choose. What you set your mind on, and the Bible talks about this all the time, to set your mind on Christ and things of above. The Bible talks about this a ton. Romans 8, 5 says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those living according to the Spirit set their, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What we set our minds on matters because that's what you'll end up choosing. The acts, this is, I'm just going to go like a lightning round now through fill-ins, so get ready. The acts of the flesh are often an ally, find an ally in our own negligence. Areas where we're often negligent, time. Time, we're often negligent in time. Let's spend our time well and give the first of our time to the Lord. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be given to you. Sometimes we seek everything else and expect the kingdom of God to be given to us. We do this the other way around. Thoughts. Is the next fill-in. We must be careful because when we let our thoughts run wild, this can be a recipe for disaster. John 1 tells us that thoughts can become flesh. The words, words do indeed become flesh. 2 Corinthians 5 says, take, or 10, 5 says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. We could be negligent in our thought life. Take your thoughts and ask the Lord to do something transformative there. Fellowship. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. When we are faced with the acts of the flesh, we are often do not think of the transformative power of fellowship. Fellowship is not teased or, you know, like, you know, just hanging out. It is, it, it is fun, but fellowship oftentimes is pulling the best out of each other in the name of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I think, fellowship, defines fellowship the best when he says that when you bear with one another, you become a brother. Fellowship ought to refine you, challenge you, and hold you accountable. And the last area where we are uh, negligent is temptations. A temptation is simply a corruption of a natural desire. You know all the natural desires that you have in your body are natural, like God gave them to you. They're okay, but they get corrupted. And that's what sin does in the garden is they corrupt 
what has happened naturally. And this is where God told Cain before he killed his brother Abel, he says, if you, if you do well, you, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It desires, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We do not need to be negligent in temptations when they arise. We simply need to walk the other direction. And then here's the end, by the way, of what happens in Revelation chapter 2, the church of Pergamum. So he says, hey, you've got this internal battle brewing. You, you, got this, you hold the, these teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and essentially they're causing you to compromise, saying that you, know, you could engage your body, but just leave your soul out. You could just do all that stuff. And, and he says, that's not right. So he says this, Revelation 2, 16 through 17, therefore repent. By the way, that's a full sentence. It's, there's a period there. That's a full sentence. Like, Jesus is like, I, I'm going to give you two words. You don't have to write it down. You might remember, but if you think you're going to forget, write it down. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except for the one who receives it. So we covered it. Repent. Stop disobeying. Repent from this idea that you have your own truth. Repent from this idea that you know best. Repent and, and follow the truth of Scripture. Follow truth revealed in Jesus. And then he says, when you do that, I'm going to give you this white stone. Now, for us, you're like, Jesus has given out rocks. I don't get it. What is, what is happening here, right? He says, I got a new name for you on this rock. There's a few different possible meanings for this. One, if you were to go to court in Pergamum, the jury would cast... Um, a guilty or not guilty verdict, a black stone would be guilty and a white stone would be not guilty. How cool is that? Come to me, I'm going to give you this white rock. But he says, that's one of the ideas. Um, venues pass them out as admission tickets to events, white rocks. Okay. But what makes most sense to me is something called Tresera, I think I'm saying this right, Tresera Hospitalis. And this is before friends would part, they would inscribe their name on a white stone, divide it in half, and give it to the other person. It became a symbol that they would be friends as long as the stone existed. What Jesus is saying is, when you truly repent, when you leave all your junk behind, when you confess that I am the way, the truth, and the life, I'm going to give you this white stone with a new name on it. I'm going to give you this not guilty verdict. I, I, I am going to give you a piece of my identity and, and it's going to match up with me. Your past doesn't have to define you any longer. See, that's the beauty of Jesus. When you repent and when you follow Jesus, your past, the junk you've done, the stuff you've done, it, it doesn't even matter anymore. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. So the Bible says that Satan is always at the throne room accusing you before God. But Jesus gave you a new name when you said yes to him. So God's like, I don't even know that guy. I don't know what you're talking about. He's got a new name in my son. I don't even know that guy. I don't know the evil that he's done in the past. He's been forgiven. It's been blotted out. I will give you a new name. So as the band comes and we go to worship and these Next couple songs, maybe you're here and that one sentence just hits you. Therefore, repent.
Maybe you're here and you've been locked in this battle of compromise just in your own life. Like, like do I do what the scriptures say or, or do I fall into to this sort of ideology? Because what this is saying is this is a battle for your mind. That's what was happening in Pergamum. Jesus is saying there's an entire world out there that wants to form and shape you and beat you into its mold. Later on, he'll call that kingdom Babylon, a kingdom that hasn't existed for 500 years. And we're going to talk all about that and why that's so important. But what he's saying is there's this entire kingdom out there that wants to shape you into its mold. Who are you going to be shaped by? Are you going to be shaped by the truth, the one that has a sword coming out of his mouth? Are you going to be shaped by Jesus, the one who died on the cross for you? Or are you going to be shaped by the ideas of the outside world? Which one are you going to be shaped by? Therefore, repent. Maybe you're here this morning and and you simply need to say yes to Jesus. You simply need to say, yes, Jesus, I need to follow you. I need to stop being my own standard, my own truth. And I need to put my hope and my trust in you. We've got yellow cards in the chair back pockets. We'd love to know about that decision. And we'd love for you to fill that out and put it in an offering box and just let us know. We'd love to pray for you. And maybe you're here right now and there's some stuff you need to repent of and you heard Jesus' words, therefore repent, and you're like, yep, that's me. I want to encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bringing in your everlasting kingdom. God, we thank you that you are the source of all truth and that your word is truth and that you speak that truth. God, I pray that if there's anybody here today who simply needs to say yes to you, who needs to put their hope and their trust and their faith in you, that they would do that right now through a simple prayer. Lord, I trust you. I trust what you've done on the cross. I trust that you've forgiven me. I trust that my life is in your hands and God, I repent for my past and I ask you to make me a brand new person in the name of Jesus. And there's some here who simply need to say, Jesus, I've been following you, but my thought life has been compromised. Help me to realign to the truth. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that God has touched your heart through today's message. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. For more information about the ministries of REC, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. See the links in the description. 